you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast, Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. Is Sudan, the third largest country in Africa with a population of about 45 million people, sliding irreversibly into civil war? More than 450 people are now confirmed to have been killed since fighting began between the armies of two rival generals in the capital city Khartoum last week. On Monday, a 72-hour ceasefire was negotiated to enable countries, including Ireland, to evacuate their citizens. At the time of recording, the ceasefire was holding, despite reports of intermittent gunfire in Khartoum. But how has a country that began a long-hoped-for transition to democracy in 2019 come to the brink of civil war? The answer lies in the motivations of the two generals. General Abdel Fattah Bohan is commander of the armed forces. Uh, General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo is commander of the so-called rapid uh, support forces. The rapid support forces have been looting facilities and homes. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, the power, money and rivalry behind the fight for Sudan. I talked to Declan Walsh, chief Africa correspondent, for the New York Times. Declan Walsh, thanks so much for joining us on In the News. Now, to start, the warfare in Khartoum that we've seen, it's the capital of Sudan, what's it all about? Well, at its core, it's a battle between two men, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, who's the uh, head of the Sudanese army, and General Mohammed Hamdan, generally known as Hemeti, who's the head of this quite powerful paramilitary force called the Rapid Sport Forces. Those two generals mounted a coup about 18 months ago. They, uni- they came together to rule the country, found it was very difficult. Um, and they were in the process of handing power back to a civilian-led government, a process that was supposed to come to a climax just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but as part of that, they had to negotiate about how to merge their two armies into one. And that, at least on the face of things, is where their disagreements turn to violence. A temporary ceasefire has been called at the time of recording. We don't know how long it's going to hold. But can you tell me, Declan, how bad has the fighting been? How much damage has been done? I don't think it's an exaggeration at this point to say that already the damage from the fighting has been extensive um, and threatens to be catastrophic. I mean, uh, since this fighting started, the fear of most Sudanese is that the fight between these two men and these two powerful military factions is going to plunge the country sooner rather than later into a civil war. Where has the fighting been happening? It's across the country. It's concentrated and most visible in in Khartoum, particularly in the centre of Khartoum, where, I mean, there's just been unprecedented scenes. uh, You know, one faction shelling the army headquarters, putting it on fire, street battles, warplanes flying low over the city, firing rockets, dropping bombs, battles for control of the bridges over the Nile. 
uh, but there's also been fighting at military bases in other parts of the country, and particularly in the western region of Darfur, which has its own history of violence going back for the last 20 years. So, you know, what's really astonishing, actually, um, Bernice, about this, about this conflict is, you know, just how quickly it has moved. It seems it's hard to believe that only 10 days ago, the international community and the leaders of the country were talking about, you know, doing some sort of a political deal. And now they find them in, in this situation. Look, we won't dwell long on the ceasefire, Declan, as things may well have changed by the time our listeners are hearing this. But what is the latest there in terms of the fighting? There definitely has been a lull in the fighting. But, you know, for the people who are left behind, their worry is that once the foreigners are gone, things are going to get even worse. Now, we want to try to understand the origins of this conflict. So let's start in 2019 with the fall of General Omar al-Bashir. He was an autocrat. He'd been in power in Sudan for nearly 30 years. And who was he and how did his grip on power come to an end? So Omar Bashir was an army officer who came to power in a military coup in the late 80s, 1989. He arguably was a very destructive ruler. He presided over several civil conflicts that erupted first in the south of Sudan, then in Darfur region. And they were, for the country, pretty disastrous. South Sudan ended up breaking away in 2011 and forming its own country, seceding. And Darfur became synonymous with the word genocide, the, the, the counterinsurgency campaign against local rebels that President Bashir and his government waged was incredibly brutal, both by the army, but also by this militia known as the Janjaweed that carried out a scorched earth policy uh, and killed probably several hundred thousand civilians. Rights groups called it deliberate ethnic cleansing as reports of atrocities piled up, including the mass rape and murder of civilians and the burning and looting of villages. So Bashir's reign really ran out of steam when those protests that you mentioned took place in 2019. And that, you know, came almost came out of nowhere and suddenly became this incredibly optimistic moment for Sudan. And tens of thousands of people massed in front of the gates of the army headquarters in Khartoum and effectively demanded the ouster of Bashir, which came on 11th, uh, April 11, 2019. It was his own generals who got rid of him. You know, he, he woke up one morning. They decided that it was no longer tenable because these protests were refusing to die down. And so they placed him under house arrest and eventually he was prosecuted and, and thrown in jail. And the period that followed that, you know, I was in Khartoum. I covered that period. I was there during the revolution and afterwards. And it was this incredible moment of hope. You know, here was this country that had been isolated from the international community for 25 years that had been under American sanctions. Its leader, Bashir, had been charged at the, or indicted at the International Criminal Court uh, for genocide for his role in the Darfur conflict. Suddenly there was this great optimism, you know, the young Sudanese in particular, the people who'd been protesting, they felt that, um, you know, this was their moment to turn it into a democracy. But that was also unfortunately where the problem started. The transitional arrangement was that there would be both civilians and military leaders would share power for a period leading up to elections. And that was a very difficult relationship, partly because, 
you know, even though Bashir was gone, the military men that he had promoted were still in power and they didn't want to let go. Protesters in Sudan are counting their dead after a brutal crackdown by security forces. A doctor's group. And that culminated in this military coup uh, 18 months ago where uh, General Burhan, who was the head of the army, and then this younger sort of upstart character, General Hamdan or Hemeti as he's known, they came together to mount a military coup. So that appeared to sort of derail this movement towards democracy. But it didn't entirely kill it. You know, the, the two generals quickly realized that it was very difficult to run Sudan. The economy was tanking. It was suddenly isolated again after the coup. And they really sort of struggled to impose their grip on the country. And that was what led them to agree just only three or four months ago that they would actually hand power back to the civilians. Uh, but unfortunately, as we see now, it was the start of this well, it really exacerbated tensions that already exist existed between them where they started to openly fall out and their armed forces on both sides started to really quietly um, tool up for a fight, I guess. So now we're in April 2023. The fighting that has taken place, it's in the context of as you've outlined there, all the years, recent years of instability and conflict. The fighting is taking place between two groups, the Sudanese army headed by Abd al-Fatah al-Burhan on the one side and on the other, the paramilitary group called Rapid Force Support Forces and its commander, Mohammed Hamd al-Daglio, who you say is popularly known as Hemadi. What is, though, the rapid support force? We understand who an army is, that the Sudanese army, but what is the rapid support force and who is Hamadi? Well, they were really born in this force that we just talked about from Darfur called the Janjaweed. You know, back in the 2000s, the Janjaweed was this ethnic militia drawn from sort of herder families in, in Darfur that was basically hired by the government to put down a local rebellion. And the Janjaweed put down that rebellion. They, they, were, they were notorious for their brutality, for their violence, for their massacres of civilians. Hemeti got his start as a commander in the Janjaweed. He was, he was one of the commanders of that group. He grew to, to a leadership position. And then as the war in Darfur died down, he had done so well that Bashir, President Bashir, sort of brought Hemeti closer to him and started to see him as a kind of useful counterbalance to other parts of the security forces that he viewed as a potential threat. So in 2013, just a decade ago, actually, Bashir sort of takes the Janjaweed and morphs them into this new paramilitary force, which is called the Rapid Support Forces. And Hemeti is the commander of that. And he just starts going from strength to strength. He sort of climbs the ladder of power and influence, not just in Darfur, but in Sudan as a whole. Uh, the Rapid Support Forces uh, starts to recruit in other parts of the country. It, he starts to make a lot of money because Bashir gives him gold mining concessions. Gold mining takes off in Sudan. He's making a lot of money from that. And then about 2017, 2018, um, he starts sort of hiring out the Rapid Support Forces as a mercenary force 
to rich Gulf countries in the region for his own soldiers to go and fight in their wars. So the most, the biggest example of that was in Yemen. There's a huge war going on in Yemen. The United Arab Emirates was, uh, and Saudi Arabia were fighting on one side of that war. Um, they didn't want to send their old soldiers to fight in it. They sent fighter planes and things like that. But as foot soldiers, they hired thousands of Sudanese, Sudanese soldiers. Some of them came from the regular army, but many of them also came from this paramilitary group, the Rapid Support Forces. Um, so that kind of further built up the Rapid Support Forces as a military force, and it also helped to make Hemeti himself, their commander, much more a very wealthy person. When the revolution happened in 20, 2019, Bashir gets kicked out. Um, he was kicked out because you know these two powerful these two powerful commanders, the head of the army and the head of the Rapid Support Forces, um, you know, agreed to throw him out. And uh, initially, they, you know, they seem to be on the same page. How did it start to go wrong that these two comrades, co-revolutionaries, started to fall out? Hemeti himself, you know, he's, I've, I've met him. I met him a few times. Um, I interviewed him just after the revolution. And, you know, he's just, he is cut from very different cloth from the army guys. Um, uh, general Burhan, he's this sort of four-star general. He's a sort of stiff-looking, more conservative character. He represents this institution that's very much a kind of formal army with links to you know, officers who may have trained in Britain or who trained in Egypt or Jordan, other Arab states. And Hemni is this guy who's come really from the sticks and has risen up through the ranks and is seen by the conventional army as a bit of an upstart, you know, um, a guy who's really built his, who's not, who hasn't received proper military training, has built up his force by kind of buying his way to power. Um, so that helps you to kind of understand, you know, that this is both, when this exploded into war just nine days ago, it's about a struggle between these two powerful individuals, you know, st struggling to, for control of the country. But it's also about a kind of a broader split within the security forces and even within the society. Because traditionally in Sudan, you know, power has laid with what they call the riverine tribe, Arab tribes, um, people who come from areas along the Nile. And people from the desert, from Darfur or from these far off areas, uh, you know, they've always been excluded. And so we see this conflict between these two guys, but we also see a conflict between these two sort of large divisions within the country itself. And that, I think, kind of helps to explain why the fighting we've seen has been really so intense. Because I think certainly for the army guys, they see Hemeti and his people as these upstarts who need to be put back in, back in their box. Um, the problem is that there's probably at least 70,000 of them. Uh, they have a lot of experience fighting in other wars, so they're quite battle-tested. And they, you know, evidently have a lot of weapons and a lot of, a lot of money. So look, clearly there's been tension growing. But what lit the fuse? What, a week and a half ago, what happened? What triggered the outbreak of fighting between the two sides? So they had been in negotiations for weeks with international mediators, the, the Americans, the British, uh, a couple of Gulf countries, the UN, uh, and they've been trying to hammer out a political deal 
where they would hand surrender power back to a civilian-led government. But first they had to agree how they were going to unify their own forces. And effectively, it came down to how quickly that would happen. Hemetes made it clear in recent years that he's got, or he had ambitions to, to rule the country. And he talked a lot about wanting to go to an election. He started handing out gifts to people, kind of turning himself into a politician. But he clearly didn't want to give up. He didn't want to merge his forces with the regular army too quickly, or else he'd lose all his leverage. So in the weeks before the fighting started, it came down to this. The army said, you need to, uh, we need to merge forces within two years. And Hemeti said, no, I think we need at least 10 years. So that was the problem. And as I understand it, in the days before the fighting started, they reached some sort of compromise on that issue. And then there was one final point, which was about how the chain of command would look, who would report to who in a new transitional government. But it seems that, you know, in parallel, as these guys were negotiating and talking peace and meeting with Western diplomats and, you know, people from other governments and trying to hammer this out. They were also quietly planning for a war. I was in Khartoum about a month ago. And when I was there, you know, there was a lot of growing tension. There was a lot of wariness from people in Khartoum who were, who were seeing these, you know, movements of troops into the city by units from both sides and they, had, they all had these sort of little military camps dotted across the city. And it was almost like they were sort of marking each other. There'd be an RSF camp here and then there'd be a military base there. And so it's like across the city, you could see these two uh, enemy rival forces arming up, sort of squaring up against each other. The hope was that this was just a sort of negotiating. They were flexing their muscles as, as a sort of negotiating ploy for the political talks that they would, you know, get over the line with. But tragically, as we can see, you know, at least one side seems to have miscalculated quite badly. And that was what led to an outbreak of fighting, of shooting that started last Saturday week. As for who fired the first shot, uh, probably predictably, both sides are accusing the other. And that's still, it's still murky. Maybe history will tell. But it does seem clear that, you know, both sides were locked and loaded, if you're like ready to go. Something happened that kicked it off. And once it happened, it was like watching dominoes. Um, you know, the fighting just sort of washed across the city from one side to the other, and then it washed across the country. I'll continue my conversation with Declan Walsh after this short break. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 
Reading about Sudan, I'm learning that a huge part of the Sudanese economy is owned and controlled by the military. 250 companies, according to some reports, are they're involved in everything from mining to agriculture are owned by the Sudanese military. It's a very unusual situation. And Hemedi, on the other side, he controls this sprawling family business that includes gold mines. So how big a role, we understand power, but how big a role does money play in this fighting? huge role in it. You know, Hemeti would not have become the force he is today if he hadn't earned a lot of money to pay for it. That money came partly from outside countries, you know, selling his, using his soldiers as mercenaries in the Emirates for their war, paid for by the Emirates, but in the war in Yemen. And part of it comes from this, you know, burgeoning business empire he's been building up with his brothers over the last number of years. And it's become clear for Hemeti in particular that as this process went forward, this political process, you know, he needed to find a way to sort of hold on to the gains that he made. If he gave up his weapons, he'd probably have lost his business empire as well. So business was a big part of it for him. For the Sudanese military, you know, the military, there's been more coups in Sudan and attempted coups than any other country in Africa since independence in 1956. And as a result of that, the military's always or nearly always been at the center of power. And part of that has meant being involved in businesses that are not strictly military things, you know, making consumer goods or engineering companies, things like that. So, you know, but so so money is a huge part of this on both sides. And, and you know, it, 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 it's a big part of the Sudanese military economy, if you like. Uh, it's also a big part of the influence of foreign powers on this fight. You know, while these two generals have been kind of tussling for power, quietly and then openly over the last couple of years. In the background, you've got a lot of other countries from around the region who've got their own interests in Sudan, and they've wanted to sort of influence the trajectory of the country. And unfortunately, some of them have done that by backing one general or the other. So when we're looking for fault about how this whole thing has fallen apart so badly, I think um, part of it is, I mean, a large part of it is with these two individuals, but it's also with the international community and part of that is with these you know med- foreign countries that have been meddling on one side or the other and sort of building them up well look as you say there's been competition for influence in the region for a long time and that comes from russia the us saudi the uae others how are those dynamics going to affect how this fighting this war is going to play out well, it's been, they've been very influential up till now. Um, Egypt is the country that's most overtly involved here. Um, you know, in the last number of months, they made it clear, the Egyptians made it clear that they had a preference for the military to come out on top of whatever new arrangement there was for, for Sudan. They don't like Hemeti. They don't like the idea of having someone they see as a glorified militia leader controlling this huge country on their southern border. So they've been playing an important role. And in fact, one of the flashpoints in the early parts of the conflict was that Hemeti's soldiers had captured uh, a couple of dozen Egyptian soldiers from an airbase just north of Khartoum, as well as some warplanes that were stationed there, Egyptian warplanes. So the Egyptians said they were on training exercises, the RSF and Hemeti, they said these guys have come here to help fight us. So, uh, you know, what Egypt does next is important. But then there are these other countries in the background, Russia, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, 
These are all countries that have ties to the belligerents. And already there's been some signs that fresh supplies of weapons have been flowing across borders, even since the fighting have started, to one side or the other. Uh, and we have reporting that the Wagner Group, the uh, private military company that is so closely tied to the Russian state, that those guys have also offered weapons to Hemeti in this fight. So there's a real danger here that, you know, for now it looks like a fight between these two rival wings of the Sudanese military, and that's bad enough. Um, but it could turn into a much bigger catastrophe if it becomes regionalized, if other countries from the region get drawn in, uh, in the same way as they were in Libya after 2011 when um, Muammar Gaddafi was, was ousted. For the people of Sudan, for the Sudanese who in 2019 presumably had so much hope that things were going to change, they'd got out under an autocratic ruler, it was going to change, uh, there was hope on the horizon that democracy might be on its way. That looks like that hope, certainly in the near term, has been dashed. I think if you look at it realistically, you know, there is no other reasonable conclusion you can reach. Um you know, foreign countries, the Americans, others, they, you know, they still say publicly that we want the two parties to stop fighting, the usual get back to the negotiating table and, you know, return to the process that's going to lead them to a civilian-led government. But realistically speaking, you look what's going on on the ground, um, it looks like these two individuals and these two forces look like they're engaged in a kind of fight to the death. And, and you're right. I mean, the civilians who, you know, thousands and thousands of Sudanese who were so optimistic just a couple of years ago, and, and in many ways were a sort of inspiration to the region. You know, they're, in the Arab world, it looked like it was going to be this glorious exception to, you know, those other countries that had had the Arab Spring, but then reverted to autocracy like Egypt or even now Tunisia, I guess. Those Sudanese civilians really had high hopes. And now those are the same people who are, you know, trapped in their homes, there's fighting going on in the streets outside. Uh, and increasingly, for those who can afford it, they're joining this exodus from the country. Declan, thanks very much. It's a pleasure. That's it for today. For more Irish Times journalism, including coverage of the warfare in Sudan, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back on Friday. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.